Okay, we're going to be in Mark 1 this morning as we begin uh, our study in Mark that will take us all the way through Resurrection Sunday. I've actually been looking forward to this. I know we spent uh, kind of a good deal of time in the Old Testament last year in Judges in the fall and uh, some different stories and, and then celebrated Advent and Christmas uh, by sort of connecting those stories to Jesus. And now we're going to kind of launch into the Jesus story part of this. And I'm excited about it. Uh, so, for as long as stories have been told, there have been what we commonly call origin stories. Stories that explain who a character is by telling where they come from and what they did before the events of the story at hand. Now, sometimes these stories are well known. For example, most people know that Ronald Reagan was an actor in Hollywood long before he became our 40th president, and that sort of sheds a little light on his immense popularity at the time. But there are other famous origin stories that aren't as widely known, uh, stories that have remained in the background or have been overlooked altogether. Like Wyatt Earp. Y'all have heard of Wyatt Earp, right? He's the famous for his feud with the Cowboys and the shootout at the OK Corral. Uh, all that happened in Tombstone, and they made that movie with Kurt Russell and them, which I love that movie, by the way. Uh, but before that, Wyatt Earp moved around a lot. He never really stayed in one place. And he worked as everything from like a deputy marshal in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, but he also ran a brothel in Peoria, Illinois, and a lot of people don't know those sorts of things about him. They, they view him as the justice lawman, you know. Uh, he's got this sort of weird background. He also gambled and dealt cards and did a lot of other things. There's something about knowing sort of where people came from that gives us a sense of who they are and what they are about, maybe even a sense of their character. In the story of Jesus, we find that he was born to a young peasant couple who lived in a small province of Judea during a time of civil unrest as the Jewish people looked for ways to gain their freedom from the Roman occupation and oppression of their land. We know this because of the gospel stories written down by Matthew and Luke. The birth of Jesus has become an incredibly important part of Christianity around the world, being celebrated at the darkest part of the year as a way of inspiring hope. But historically, Christians did not always celebrate the birth of Jesus as we do now. They focused almost entirely on his divinity, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. And from all accounts, their faith seemed to have been a much more daily sort of thing. They observed moments during each day with prayer, such as at sunrise or waking, and then during noontide, is what they called, and then at sunset or just before going to sleep, the three times of the day marking it out. And then on Sunday, they would gather at dawn and celebrate the resurrection by taking what we call the Lord's Supper and then singing hymns together. They did this every week. December 25th was not identified even as the date of Jesus' birth until a historian by the name Sextus Julius Africanus 
wrote about it in 221. Even then, there seemed to have been quite a bit of debate about the exact date of Jesus' birth, or even the idea of having a date at all. Really, no one knew when it happened or, or anything like that. It wasn't until around the year 350 that Pope Julius declared December 25th as the official date for Christmas when they would celebrate the birth of Jesus. And that moved it into sort of the place of the winter solstice celebrations that went on, or even the Roman uh, Saturnalia is what they called it, their, their worship of their gods that took place during that time of the year. Basically just kind of put it on top of those as a celebration of Jesus. And the origin story of Jesus does not even include his birth narrative in the other two Gospels that we have, Mark or John. Neither one of them even mentions it. This morning, we're going to begin our study in the book of Mark, and we will be tackling this question along with maybe taking a look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the origin story of Jesus as Mark relates it. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to begin in Mark 1, verse 1. As we read together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May God bless the reading of his word. The first verse of Mark's gospel story sounds very much like the first verse of Genesis, right? Both proclaim the beginning of something. In Genesis, it's the creation story, the origin of the world. But Mark begins with a prophecy connected to the Messiah, which means we need to know more about what people expected when they heard the term Messiah. But it also means that Mark did not include the nativity. We just celebrated Advent and Christmas, which marks the coming of Messiah. That's one of our most cherished 
holy days along with the resurrection. If the birth of Jesus is such an important thing that we set aside time in our yearly calendar to celebrate it, you would think it was fairly important for Mark. I mean, if you ask most Christians to name the major holidays of our faith, it's in the top two. So why didn't Mark include any mention of it? Now, I want to be upfront about this. I don't have an answer for this question. It's a question that came to me in the week. I have no answer for it. It doesn't make sense to me even, really, why Mark wouldn't include that. I say that knowing that this issue is one of contention between groups of people who approach the scriptures with preconceived ideas and theological assumptions. But for me, it's just an honest question. I, I don't understand it at all. And as I've studied this week, it seems like I'm not the only one. I've read quite a number of articles and commentaries on the subject and have yet to find a reasonable explanation that doesn't end up rendering Christmas as some sort of side quest or side story. It may be interesting, and thanks to Matthew and Luke for telling us about it in some detail, but ultimately Mark and John don't even bother with it. For that matter, Paul never even brings it up in any of his letters. One thing we do know from the book of Mark is this. Mark knew where Jesus was from. He knew who his mother was, even knew who his siblings were, and what he did for a living before the beginning of the gospel. We find all this in the last few verses of chapter 3 when Mark recounted Mary and Jesus' brothers showing up to take him home because they thought he was crazy. We'll get to that story. Uh, and then we get a bit more information in the first several verses of chapter 6 when Mark described what happened when Jesus taught in the synagogue of Nazareth. Now in both situations, Mark mentioned these details as if they were understood, as if uh, people either already knew about them or they were only sort of loosely related to the story he was telling. And if the Gospel of Mark were the only book we had on Jesus, it's safe to say that we wouldn't be celebrating Advent or Christmas every year. Thankfully, that isn't the case, but it's still curious. Like I said, even after studying this, I don't have a solid answer, but here's what we know for sure. Mark wanted to jump right into the action of Jesus' ministry. So he began the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with John preaching repentance in the wilderness and Jesus showing up to be baptized. And that doesn't mean we should toss Advent and Christmas aside and forget all about them or anything like that. But it does mean that Jesus being born isn't nearly as important as what Jesus said and did. In other words, if our faith is more captivated by the idea of Christmas than what Jesus actually said and did, we're making a big mistake. We are overvaluing his birth at the expense of his teaching, his death, his resurrection, and ascension to the throne. Because if Jesus had been born, but never taught about God's kingdom, or never died on the cross, or rose from the dead, if he never ascended his throne at the right hand of the Father, his birth just isn't that meaningful without what came after it. And if we're going to say we believe in him, then it's not enough to be happy about Christmas 
and the baby Jesus if we aren't more excited about following him in word and deed. With all that said, we also need to recognize that Mark's gospel was primarily aimed at Greeks and Romans. And its language and style make that clear as you read it. Mark was writing an action-adventure movie version of the gospel. Uh, he was telling what happened in that way to grab people's attention and hold it long enough to get the point across. And with that being the case, then, why did he use Old Testament Jewish prophecy? Right? How does that fit? Well, Greeks and Romans accepted the idea of prophecy. They had their own versions of prophets and prophecies, oracles and seers and whatnot. And this would have fit right in with how they would understand the story of a heroic journey, which was very common in that time. And that's basically what Mark's trying to do with the story of Jesus. He's trying to tell the heroic story, the heroic journey of Jesus. And so Mark included two prophecies that worked in tandem, quoting from both Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3 to establish that this is the story of a hero who had been promised long ago. A hero who had a messenger sent ahead to declare his coming. And that brings us to John the Baptist. And he is an unusual character to be certain, right? Because if all we know about him is what we read in this gospel, we get a very distinct but curious picture of the man sent ahead of our hero as his messenger. And we know that he was baptizing in the wilderness, uh, that he was concerned with repentance, that was his main thing, and that he was focused on the forgiveness of sins, that was the whole idea. It seems, that part at least, seems fairly normal. They sound reasonable and make sense, and any respectable prophet would have probably been doing those sorts of things. But that's not all we know about John. We know that he was clothed in camel's hair, that he wore a leather belt, which, you know, Mark says that as if it was unusual for the time. It's, it's rare that people wore belts like that. Uh, we also know that he ate locusts and wild honey, like from beehives. He'd scoop it out and eat it raw. Uh, and then he preached of the one to come and then talked about how he was baptizing with water, but the one to come would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Like a, there was a step up, there was something new and better that was going to be taking place. Now be honest, if a guy shows up out on the edge of town and he's wearing a belted camel skin tunic and he's eating locusts and merrily hanging out with bees, how many of us would automatically be ready to hear what that guy had to say? <laughs> Right? Probably not. I don't know. He'd have quite a buzz about it. Right. Yeah, there we go. So probably not. Uh, the eating locusts part alone would make me wonder if he was right in the head. That just doesn't sound tempting or tasty or that. But John isn't important for how he looks so much as for what he said and did. And so again, words and actions are what are primarily important in this story. It's at this point that Jesus showed up in the story. We're told that he came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. But unlike any of John's other baptisms, something unique happened when Jesus came up out of the water. 
This is when the prophecy starts to make sense because this was extraordinary. It's easy for us to sort of overlook what happened because we're so familiar with it, but when Mark wrote this, things were very different. God had not spoken for around 400 years before this. God had not sent prophets to the people where they were. God had been silent. Now the temple had been rebuilt. We know that much. Herod had begun that process and made this beautiful structure. But the people weren't free. They were under Roman occupation. And so there was a lot of tension at the time. And a lot of questions and curiosity. Well, what's God doing? When will God move? But when Jesus came up out of the water, three extremely unusual things happened. I really want us to focus on these. The first thing that happened is the heavens were torn open. It's the wording that's used. And the word in the Greek there is schizo. And that might sound familiar. It means to rend or split apart. And we know that word because of schizophrenia, right? Same idea. But this isn't about a torn mental state. This is the heavens being torn open. In other words, the God who came down to meet Moses at Sinai, the God who came down to deliver David from the Philistines and their giants, the God he called to later, later on in his life to rend the heavens and come down again, the God who the prophet Isaiah called and cried out to, desiring that he rend the heavens and come down that same God tore open the sky at this particular moment to lay a blessing on Jesus to establish who he was. Then the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Now, this is a visible, visible manifestation seen by everyone who would have been around and this is where we get the dove imagery that sort of permeates Christian culture. We, the doves are everywhere, right? And that set represents the Holy Spirit. Now in the, the wording, it doesn't say that it came down as a dove, but in likeness, like a dove would bat its wings and sort of float down. That's the picture that's being drawn here. And this is interesting imagery because it's other places in Scripture. Like in Psalm 61.4, where the imagery is of being sheltered in the wings of the Lord, as if the Lord has spread his wings and sheltered us. And that's the idea here, is that the, the Spirit is coming down in the form of a dove, sheltering with its wings. The third thing that we see is a voice from heaven speaks out and says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. After not speaking for 400 years, after not sending prophets, after being silent for so long, at the moment Jesus came up out of the water, the Father broke his silence to say, yes. Yes, I have heard your cries. Yes, I have seen your suffering. Here is my answer, my beloved son my pride and joy. This is how we are introduced to Jesus in Mark's gospel. 
So while it isn't a precious moment's nativity scene, it is a revelation of God's heart for us. Of what author Brendan Manning called the furious longing of God. Jesus diligently surrendering himself in baptism is the first heroic act we see in Mark's gospel, and it sets the tone for the rest of his historic and heroic story. Immediately after this amazing revelation at the Jordan River, we see that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. And that sort of circles back around what happened with Israel when God set them free from their slavery in Egypt, doesn't it? They were led into the wilderness to meet with God, and so was Jesus. Although he didn't need to be free because he himself was bringing freedom from slavery to sin and death. And even though he himself was God, it was still important for him to go into the wilderness and meet with the Father. So he did. And where Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, revealing what true obedience looks like. And this is where we are introduced to Satan. And we need to pay close attention to how the gospel story presents him, because Christians tend to get sort of carried away and attribute a lot to him that he probably has nothing to do with, and then imagine him with abilities that he doesn't have. Yeah. I'm not saying Satan isn't bad, because that's ridiculous. I'm just saying he isn't what Milton and Dante and popular culture have made him out to be. He isn't God's equal or adversary. He is a created being. And that has a lot of theological implications, but he isn't a God. He isn't all-powerful. He isn't able to drag us anywhere we don't want to be dragged. We know this because of Jesus, who resisted him so that we might resist him as well. Who empowers us through the Holy Spirit to say and do the kinds of things that Jesus said and did. But I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Here in this passage, we find Satan introduced as the tempter. And that's it. No horns, no tail. No fancy red jumpsuit, nothing like that. He was simply out in the wilderness trying to tempt Jesus while Jesus was out in the wilderness meeting with God the Father. What this means for us is that when we journey beyond our comfortable, familiar spaces into the unknown wilderness to meet with God, we will be tempted. We will be pulled in directions that lead away from the Lord. This is part of the journey. But in the end of verse 13, we see that God doesn't leave us out there on our own. Mark wrote that angels were ministering to Jesus as he walked among the wild animals. And that may seem like a strange detail to add, but it fits because the wilderness is wild. And when we head into the wilderness, we will face wild things. Jesus did it, and we can too because of him, because of what he did. And we know we won't be alone. So we can't be afraid to move forward. 
to leave certain things behind. In the story of Israel, they got to a point in the wilderness, they met with God at Sinai, and then before long, they were griping about the situation and sort of longing for the stability that they had in their slavery. That's a situation we find in Exodus 16, verses 2 through 3, where we read that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Which, if we're honest, sounds a lot like our own thoughts about following God sometimes, doesn't it? Because we don't like trusting in what we can't see any more than they do. We don't like not being in control and not being able to see what is ahead. And that's why we stay on the sidelines. That's why we don't experience God the way we think we should. It's not God who is absent, it's us. We refuse to follow God into the unknown journey of faith, and we long for the stable comfort of our sinfulness. But if we're serious about following Jesus, that path leads into the wilderness where the wild things are, and we will face fierce temptation just as he did. It may not be comfortable, but there's no other path. There's no other way to live out our faith. We need to stop pretending that there is. We need to stop pretending Sunday morning worship or Wednesday evening Bible study is all there is to following Jesus. We need to understand that those are merely the rendezvous points for those living out in the wild. Because we have work to do. We have a mission. And we see it introduced in verses 15, 14 and 15. After John got arrested, Jesus began to proclaim the gospel of God. And this is what he said, pay close attention. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the mission and the message that Jesus proclaimed. That's what he was all about. And that makes it ours as well. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from the darkness and trust in what God is doing. It's that simple. And it's the hardest thing any of us will ever do because it will cost us. Repenting will cost us having things our own way. It will cost us our comfort. It will cost us having a good sense of what's next all the time. It will cost us the freedom we believe we have in exchange for the glorious freedom of the children of God. This journey requires that we trust God. Not in the casual way people like to talk about trusting in God when what they really mean is that they have some vague, ambivalent desire to think nice thoughts about God and maybe occasionally join with others in worship. Not like that. But in the way that drives us into the wilderness 
to, fake, to face our darkest temptations and then prepares us to proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom to everyone we encounter as we meet with God there. Just as Jesus did. Because this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, as we come before you, we ask that these words would weigh heavy on our hearts. That your spirit would take them and use them to transform us and convict us, to make us into the likeness of Jesus so that we might say and do what he said and did. We pray, Father, that you would use us in that way to continue to reach the world with your good news that the kingdom is at hand and that they can be a part of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.